Hey, everybody, this is Ben Bowman and Alex Titus. Welcome back to another episode of The Oregon Bridge. I think fundamentally, we should try to learn the lessons of this experience and not forget the vulnerabilities that have been exposed. And I really object to the idea that I hear sometimes around, let's get back to normal. Normal is not so great for a lot of people. And I don't think that should be the height of our aspirations in recovery. We've got to learn lessons from what was experienced here. You know, we should have the humility and the confidence to say, let's put our current approaches up to scrutiny. And if it's not right, let's get it fixed. All right, folks, continuing our series of interviews with gubernatorial candidates on both sides of the aisle, we have a second time guest, State Treasurer Tobias Reed in his previous episode, had not announced he was running for governor. So that episode, which you should definitely check out, talks a lot about his personal background, some state treasury issues. And in this episode with Treasurer Reed, we focused a lot on the policy issues of the day that the next governor will have to deal with and his vision and ideas on these uh, including some non-conventional issues. I think Alex may have the uh, honor of being the first person to ask a gubernatorial candidate in Oregon about crypto, potentially. But we also talked about housing affordability, homelessness, the Elliott State Forest, transparency and in investing. And we talked about the state of the race, which as a quick summary for folks listening, Nick Kristoff has officially been ruled ineligible to run because he doesn't meet the residency requirement. The state Supreme Court essentially upheld the Secretary of State's right to make that decision, which as Treasurer Reed says in this episode, makes it essentially a two-person race. You have the former Speaker of the House, Tina Kotek, who has consolidated much of the support of progressive groups like labor groups and pro-choice institutions. And you have Treasurer Tobias Reed, who first elected the state treasurer's office in 2016, previously served, I think, 10 years in the state legislature. And they come from different places in the Democratic Party, and they appeal to different constituencies. And I thought the the episode was super entertaining and interesting. Alex, I'm curious what stands out to you. Yeah, I think you actually wrapped it up pretty nicely. I got to ask him some questions on crypto, which I thought were interesting. We also got to talk about The state of Oregon, right, with PERS, we spend a lot of investment money. Where is that money going and where should it go? I think that's a question that anyone running for governor should be asked, and I think he covered it pretty well. We talked about homelessness and, you know, really highlighted what I think are some of the most important issues of the day. And what I really like about this format is, frankly, to be honest, if you are a person who is considering voting for Tina Kotek or for Tobias Reed, like, there is probably no better interview to understand his position on policy than the one that we just did. Maybe if he's written some really long op-ed or something like that, or even probably we have much more informative than his own campaign website on kind of like what he's thinking about the most important issues that are impacting all of us. So yeah, really excited that we got to have him on for the interview uh, and hopefully we'll get to have Kotech also. So we'll get the, quite the full slate of candidates. We've had a bunch of GOP candidates on as well. So definitely go back if you're looking on that side of the aisle to check those out too. Absolutely. All right, folks, with that, let's jump straight into the interview. All right. Treasurer Tobias Reed. Last time you were on the podcast, you were just Treasurer Tobias Reed. Now you're Treasurer Tobias Reed and candidate for governor. So how has your life changed since you made that announcement? Yeah, it's a roller coaster. There are things that, that change, but uh, I'm still trying to do the best I can for the future of Oregon. I like the job I have. I would love to serve as governor. Most importantly, I'm still uh, father to two great kids and uh, have a, a wonderful wife who tolerates me. 
<laughs> Sounds like a pretty good, pretty good gig so far. So jumping right into the policy section, last time we focused a lot on the state treasurer's role. And this time we want to talk a lot about broader issues related to what your job would be as governor if you're successful. Yep. And the, the place we wanted to start is a place where you've actually been pretty vocal. And I think maybe perhaps more vocal than any candidate on either side of the aisle, which is public education and the recovery of public education post COVID. So for our audience, many of whom are more familiar than even we are uh, who are living this, but there have been some significant issues with what ODE is describing as unfinished learning or learning loss, students who basically are falling further behind their grade level where they should be. There's huge social, emotional, mental health challenges where students are bringing this trauma to school. It's making it harder to be successful academically. We've got this dramatic workforce crisis where we don't have enough professional to fill the roles. So if you're successful, you would actually be Oregon superintendent of public instruction because of a law that was passed several years ago, you'd be in charge of writing the education ship. So I know you came out with a bunch of policy within the last few weeks. Can you just walk us through on a broad level? What is your vision for the post-pandemic education recovery in Oregon? So Ben, I, I feel like I've got to quote some of the other folks who've started their answers to your recent questions by saying, I think you covered about 420 <laughs> questions <laughs> in that one. So let's let's take them on kind of one at a time. Make them bite-sized. Uh, yeah, well, I'll say a few things and then, and then you can add in some more detailed questions because there's a lot here. And I mean, the place to start, I think, is by acknowledging that my view here is limited. I have some, some observations and some thoughts. You're the guy on the school board, so this could be a good dialogue. But as a parent, you know, we have a seventh grade daughter and a third grade son. I'm helping to coach the seventh grade girls basketball team. So I get a little view of that. By the way, if you want a full dose of humanity sometime, seventh grade <laughs> girls basketball is a good place to get it. We get everything in every practice, laughter and tears and everything in between. I think fundamentally, we should try to learn the lessons of this experience and not forget the vulnerabilities that have been exposed. And I really object to the idea that I hear sometimes around, let's get back to normal. Normal was not so great for a lot of people. And I don't think that should be the height of our aspirations in recovering. We've got to learn lessons from what was uh, experienced here. We are going to see a lot of gaps, uh, a lot of mental health challenges, a lot of lost learning, and I don't lose sight of that when the pandemic sort of fades from memory. So one really specific example, I'd like to see what creative ways we can explore that would lengthen the school year. And I'm not suggesting that that would come without cost, nor that it would look exactly the same in all 197 school districts across the state. But there are creative and interesting examples um, that I've learned about where school districts are finding ways to meet the needs of their population, whether that is someone who, who missed out on something, a student, someone who has struggled with something, or just a, an enrichment opportunity. Most of us are not farmers any longer, and I don't think we should be limited to a, a, an academic schedule that assumes that. That's really important. I didn't see a lot of examples through the pandemic of technology being used really successfully, but I did see a lot of places where it could be. And in a time when we have resources, making those kinds of investments to figure out where we can fill gaps, that I think is a, is a huge opportunity. And the district where, where we are parents in Beaverton, I've talked specifically with them about the investments they made with, with some early dollars from the Student Success Act in mental health capacity and, and the, the payoff that they've seen there. 
of course, some of those folks have had to do jobs that doesn't that don't allow them to um, to use that specific skill as much because they're filling in for other people. But the Beaverton folks were really clear about their belief that they would be a lot worse off had they not made those investments and didn't have access to that kind of capacity. So those are a few thoughts. And and by now I've I think wandered away. Uh, no, no, no. In the specifics of your question, you got all those multi-dimensions. So I was going to say, I gave you a lot to cover. You covered all of it. I agree with virtually everything you said there. I also strongly believe we need to figure out how to lengthen the school year and that it will cost us money to do so. I think of technology during COVID as a school board member. It's like we thought, you know, our district moved to one-to-one, which basically means one device for every kid, um, whether it be a tablet or a laptop prior to the pandemic. So we thought we were in a good shape and relative to other districts we were, but the promise of technology in the 2020s was not realized by students. Um, And in fact, what we discovered is virtual school for, for some students, we should recognize it was awesome and they excelled and they don't want to go back to the old format for several reasons. But for most students, it just wasn't the same and it was harder to learn and they missed the social parts of school and there were real challenges with it. So that's my observation at the board level. Yeah, Um, I I agree with that. And I think you put it well, there are some people for whom that's a real advantage, but the number of those people is relatively small. And even for those people, uh, a, a remote context leaves out the important interaction with, with other people. Um, and, and we've got to figure out ways to meet those needs for everybody. So quick, sorry, Alex, I'm going to, I'm going to follow up one or maybe two here. Um, so first follow-up is I was talking to a friend who works in education policy at the state level and asked him like, okay, post student success act, forget the pandemic for a moment, post student success act. What's the, what should be the focus of the education community? And this person said, education workforce should be the next like big focus on the policy level, because as I'm sure you're well aware, we, it got so bad with substitute teachers in Oregon that we literally said, if you're 18 years old and have a clean criminal background, you can go be a teacher for, as a substitute. Oh, I I want to talk about that because I think that's part of the story, but there's, there's a problem with that too, because there are two specific anecdotes that I've talked directly to people about uh, was the huge delay in, in reviewing those applications. Um, they're way behind, um, like months behind. Someone who's who, they? TSPC. Uh, TSPC, right? Sorry, okay. good, good clarification. So someone applies, says, "I want to be a a, a a substitute." Oh, we're you know three months behind in looking at those applications. That's a giant problem. And furthermore, another person, so they, they they go through that application and they're asked to pay. I don't remember the specific amount, but but several I don't know, several hundred or a couple hundred dollars. Yeah. It was not a big problem for this particular person, but if the desperation is there that we hear about, what are we doing putting up barriers for people who want to be in that role helping people? And so I, I definitely agree with the workforce question, and, and that's that's one aspect of it, making sure that there are, um, you know, that there's adequate pay and benefits uh, is a big part of it, a safe environment for people yeah. to teach in. Um, but I think it's also got to be uh, we've got to look for places where, where we're doing more than just those uh, sort of typical things. Um, I think we could we could look really uh, creatively at, at real student loan forgiveness in Oregon. Um, we could think about um, down payment assistance for people who are, are entering the, the uh, profession, hazard pay, retention bonuses. These are all things that I think would go a long way to, to demonstrating 
the value that, that many of us do and that we all should feel for the work that educators are doing. And to extend a little bit on your original uh, question around workforce, the other thing that I think should be, should be top of the list going forward is an explicit investment in early reading initiatives. Mm. Um, the dashboard for, for education um, you know, progress is, is gonna have more than one thing, but third grade reading uh, has to be at or near the top. And there's so much good uh, scholarship and data around the benefits of making sure that teachers have specific training, specific skills um, to get people on track. That would be at the top of my list as well. Have you been following this, um, this, this, I don't want to say controversy because that's not correct, but, but this issue of curriculum and how there's like, there's an, an advocacy group being formed that's basically saying, there's a right way to teach reading that actually helps students read more quickly, particularly those who have learning challenges and yes. we're not using that approach in most schools. What are your thoughts on that and how we could incorporate that at the state level? I, I would be foolish to say I'm an expert enough to say that's the right answer and that's the wrong answer. But I think that's absolutely the kind of question that we should be grappling with because getting that right pays such huge dividends down the road. A kid who is is reading on, on is on track uh, with respect to reading in the third grade is much more likely to graduate successfully and, and go on to the life that they want. Some, I mean, that's that's where a dropout starts uh, in third grade, someone who's not on track, all the struggles that, that come later. So getting that right is is hugely important. And we should, you know, we should have the humility and the confidence to say, let's let's put our current uh, approaches up to scrutiny. And if it's not right, let's get it fixed. Um, I think there's there's a lot of good reason to suspect that that these approaches that other states, I think it's Mississippi, um, uh, that that is uh, that they're taking really has promise for us too. Well, Alex, now that I've monopolized the first uh, first few minutes here with education, take us to something easier like housing. Why would this episode be any different than any of the others? <laughs> Good point. That, that is the monopoly. And now we'll go to a super easy issue, which is homelessness. How did I know? There's, there's no skill. There's, you know, it's, it's a very easy one to solve. Uh, uh, but, uh, but yeah, Treasurer, I do. Uh, so kind of the way that, I, and I, I like asking this question for a number of reasons. One, I think Homelessness is, at least from the Oregon Values and Beliefs surveys, continues to rank very high up for yes. Oregonian voters across the aisle. Uh, two, so many issues have been uh, politicized, maybe isn't the right word, but like the right is everybody on the right believes in this and everybody on the left believes in that, basically, for a yep. lot of political issues. I don't think homelessness is one of those issues. We've had dramatically varying answers from both Republicans and Democrats who've come on this show. Uh, I think that most people would agree that whatever the sort of approach that the state is taking right now just isn't working. Yeah. And obviously, that's a that's a complicated question, right? Because you know, Governor Brown is doing her thing, the legislature is doing their thing, the city of Portland is doing their thing, and Ben, you know, there's obviously the it's a statewide issue. It's a very complex one. Uh, just kind of to start more broadly, uh, if you were to become governor, what's what's kind of the approach or the framework that you would have to, to start to address the issue? Well, I appreciate the way you you put it uh, in your question, uh, Titus, because because I think you're right. It does tend to be a, a binary question for people. I think you're also right in that it's not particularly partisan. What I've observed is that people seem to think it's all a matter of, uh, you know, A, we can't do anything until we have permanent housing in place. Or B, 
we've just got to sweep streets and, and there's not as much in between. And, you know, we've talked enough that I think you know about me. I, I don't like those kinds of binary choices. I think this is one, absolutely a, a statewide issue. Um, it's visible, especially in Portland, but it's no less present other places. Even yesterday, I had a conversation with the mayor of North Bend and uh, talked about the challenges that she has uh, with, with their version of, of this issue. Um, I think it's a, it's a both kind of question. And fundamentally, I start from the position that there's nothing compassionate about letting people continue to live on the streets in, in unsafe places where they're surrounded by trash and needles and, and human waste. Uh, it's not fair to them. They are our neighbors. They are uh, fellow humans. And it's also not fair to businesses and to people who are trying to go to work and feel safe and you know a real barrier to all the other things we want to do as a state. So in the in the short term, I think we have to continue uh, prioritizing the 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 addition of transitional and emergency housing um, that allow people to to access the the services they need, including uh, substance abuse, uh, mental health. Is homelessness and, and houselessness, of course, is, is really the culmination of a whole lot of other issues that, that lead a person to that situation. So that's the short term. And in the long run, we got to get a lot better at building affordable housing faster. Um, I think we are, are losing confidence uh, of voters who have supported bonds and, and funding mechanisms saying, hey, I, I voted for that. Where are these units that, that I was I was promised? Um, so it's a short-term, long-term thing, but in the short term, we can't let our, our parks and public spaces continue to be taken over by these unsafe, unsanitary encampments. And that's why I'm, I'm a, uh, a strong supporter of the, the, um, the call that the mayor's made uh, for additional support from the legislature for emergency measures. And even today, I've read an article about a package that may be emerging in the legislature to address some of that. So I think there's reason for optimism, um, but it, it is also, uh, wrap up with this, this observation, uh, it is not enough to just say we've passed a bill or we've, we've appropriated dollars. We've seen plenty of mm -hmm. examples where that hasn't been enough. Great that we supported rental assistance, not so great that uh, those dollars were languishing at the Housing and Community Services Agency and not in the hands uh, of people who needed that. So I think the governor's role is also uh, about making sure that those uh, resources are in place, but that the execution follows, that, that the uh, results are delivered uh, to communities and to people who need the support. Yeah, no, and I think that that, no, I think you uh, definitely summed up the framework really nicely there. Uh, I did want to ask uh, about one thing you said, which is the affordable housing issue. And uh, I don't, I don't know enough in terms about the data to where, you know, houses or rents or housing prices or whatever rise to a certain point and that actually causes people to go on the street. Uh, but it doesn't surprise me in general that that is obviously a large contributing factor. Uh, what, what is your approach? And because I feel like people, the people on the right talk about it too, right? We talk a lot about affordable housing. And I think that there's, I mean, obviously there's different ideas to do that. Uh, how would you sort of approach that as governor to make that happen? Like it, I don't know, it seems like the, like part of the answer clearly is affordable housing, but then it just seems to not happen, or I don't know if rents rise too fast or whatever, but uh, kind of curious of like what your your plan or kind of how you would approach that too. Well, I think you're 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 asking a smart question that, that's a little broader than what I was referring to specifically. When I'm, when I'm talking about uh, initially, and we can go to the, to the broader issue, is the fact that, you know, uh, 
individual communities, Metro, uh, various other entities have said, Here, here's our approval for, for funding for affordable housing. And that can mean different things in different parts of the community, but we haven't built them at a fast enough rate. And people are losing confidence saying, I voted for that thing for $600 million. Where are the units that, that I was promised? And that not only has a, has a confidence issue amongst voters, um, but it, we're because of the delays, because of the processes that we have in place, the per unit cost rises. So I think we can we can do more to be more efficient and faster at delivering those units, even with existing funding mechanisms. Um, the broader issue that I think you're alluding to is also right. Part of the issue that we have with homelessness and houselessness is a result of our past economic success and and our inability or unwillingness to keep up. Uh, with with the number of people who are moving to Oregon, when someone comes to Oregon and they're buying a house, there's not a new house. They're gonna they're gonna buy an existing one, and and that limits the supply. Uh, so we have work to do to to catch up. Um, you know, I, I forget the exact number, but we're behind in the number of units that we should be building, and we're not keeping pace. So that uh, that gap continues to to increase. So. Um... I'm debating. I think I actually am going to shift the order here a little, Alex, because I think it makes sense. So when it comes to affordable housing and when it comes to manufacturing policy, um, one of the things that is cited by some folks is land use planning and the availability of land and how Oregon's system of land use planning is put may put pressure on um, pricing or um, even availability of purchasing like Intel, basically that I can't even remember what the number was, but they needed a ton of acres to be able to build their plant and there it just didn't exist in Oregon. Um, well, it, it, it didn't exist in, in a form that was ready. And that's an interesting point too, because um, we can do better at that and having an understanding of what land exists, even if it's in fragmented ownership and, and be ready. We can have those plans in place to say, uh, you know, for the for the right circumstance, we're ready to pull the trigger and and unify the, the ownership of, of adjacent uh, parcels, for example, and have uh, have done the work to, to have infrastructure plans in place. Uh, I, I don't I'm not so naive as to think we're going to win every one of those uh, uh, battles or competitions. But it does bother me that we seemingly didn't even make an effort in this case. Uh, our largest, largest private sector employer in Oregon, we ought to be maybe even more aware of their challenges before they are. Um, that's a big deal for us. And, and we should be paying attention and, and putting our best foot forward all the time. So that's super interesting. I had not heard the I, the idea or the concept of unifying ownership in the right circumstances. That's interesting. And that's kind of where I'm getting. The, the second half of my premise is, and... Oregon has basically avoided the sprawl that has uh, just, I don't want to say destroyed, but makes a lot of places across the country undesirable. Um, and we've done a pretty good job of protecting our natural resources um, for like agricultural uses, recreational uses, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. So how, your, your first answer is a good one of like, let's think creatively about ownership and how we would transfer ownership in the right circumstances. How else do you think about the tensions and trade-offs of Oregon's land use planning system? Well, first, let's be honest about it. There are trade-offs and there are costs, and we can't pretend that, that it's, it's free. I agree with you that there are some really desirable um, results of that. Um, I think you put it well. Um, we have in most places in Oregon a pretty clear delineation between this is the community and this is this is the rural area and we protected uh, farmland and all that sort of stuff and that really matters. But there is a cost to it and and we should be willing to, to defend that if, if we believe in it and I mostly do. 
but I also don't think it's it's a it's an all or nothing uh, trade off. Um, when I was in the legislature, I spent a lot of time uh, on the issue of brownfields. Um, there, are, there are big opportunities for redevelopment inside the urban growth boundary as well. Um, you, can you refresh us on brownfields? Yeah, it's essentially a, a, a place that, that is polluted or otherwise um, not useful for, for some reason. There's, I was just about to describe a perfect example of this. Um, when you're in Beaverton next time, uh, go go get a coffee at Ava Rosteria in downtown. I think there's one there are ones in, in Tigard and Lake Oswego as well. Um, the story of this place is fantastic. It's a woman named Amy Siberian who was at the time a, a PhD engineering student at Oregon State. She needed a, a project for her, her dissertation and she was particularly interested in, in brownfields. So she took this abandoned gas station in downtown Beaverton and redeveloped it into this, uh, into this coffee shop. Um, it has it plays another really important role. It's near Beaverton High School. It's one of the few 24 hour places with free Wi-Fi and all the rest. Uh, she has her PhD now, uh, but she also has like four locations of, of Avarosteria. Um, so that's not just for um, for commercial applications, but I think it can certainly be for uh, multifamily and affordable housing options as well. I love that. Um, broader, one more broader environmental question. So the short session is jam packed with a couple of really high profile environmental issues. So you've got Elliott State Forest being issue being what appears to be resolved in a bipartisan consensus fashion. Amazing end to the story there. Uh, and let's talk about that too when you get through okay, the question. Okay. There's more there. Yep. And then the second piece is the Oregon Private Forest Accords looks like it is on track to have, if not unanimous, bipartisan approval in both chambers. So it looks like you're gonna <laughs> you're gonna take exception with my premise, which was assuming those are resolved issues, which maybe they're not. What is the next chapter of the environmental conservation movement or um, policy uh, framework in in Oregon? Well, I'm not going to take exception with the premise. I'm just going to remember. Um, well, there's some there's so many examples to make a, a football analogy. You, you can't you don't start celebrating until you've crossed <laughs> the, the goal line. Um, True. There's there's a ways to go yet. I, I'm very optimistic and. Uh, encouraged by, by what we've, it feels like we're we're on the cusp here, and and for me there there are a lot of lessons from that experience. I think it is largely a, a matter around um, learning from from how important it is to to be diligent and persistent and and continue to work the details when the headlines have left. Um, I, I've I'm less involved in the private forest, of course, so I can't speak to that with as much um, confidence, but the Elliot has been really involved in that from the beginning. And to think about where we started uh, and the, the vitriol and the challenge that the Elliot represents, I mean, it's been a festering problem for Oregon since the 90s. Um, this tension has always existed. And, and the, the, the basic tension, right, is we we have an obligation, a constitutional obligation for state forest lands to be producing revenue for the common school fund. The Elliott wasn't producing revenue like it was supposed to, I guess. And so there's this question like, do we sell it? Do we, you know, what is the appropriate way where we can com complete our obligations in, from the right. constitution, but also right. preserve? It's, it started, uh, you know, back at statehood when the federal government gave the, I think, fifth and 25th section of every township to state government on the condition that be used to support the common schools, public, public education. Over time, those lands were, some of them were sold off, some were consolidated, and we ended up with the Elliott State Forest. And at the time, that worked really well because we we're cutting trees, the, the revenue can be used to subsidize schools. But 
um, things have changed. The Elliot is also the habitat for the coastal coho and the marble murrelet and the uh, spotted owl. And the relationship essentially flipped. So it, it has been the case in recent years that it's the school kids of Oregon who are subsidizing the forest rather than the reverse. So when I dropped into this conversation, uh, the previous land board had adopted a plan to sell the forests and, and deposit the proceeds in the common school fund. Um, that was not met with a lot of approval for all of the, the reasons you might expect. So what we've done is really try to ask a set of broader questions and how do we meet our obligation to the common school fund and simultaneously preserve the values of, of conservation and public access, public ownership. Uh, and, and my contribution, I think largely was to say, there's also a real research opportunity here. And after all, we have the number two forestry school in the world at Oregon State University, why are they not involved? And so we're on the cusp now of transforming this forest into a research forest, um, simultaneously creating the largest uh, preserve uh, in, in the coast range, uh, and one of the largest living laboratories. So we'll be able to, to figure out how we can practice sustainable forestry, how we can make use of carbon markets, um, all and, and protect, uh, protect these, uh, these species as well. For me, it all sort of came down to, um, I'd probably never forget this image, pre-pandemic, we were in the, the room and sitting at the table in front of us, uh, with Bob Salinger, who, who represents Portland Audubon. You're going to get to know all these people when you're a legislator, even <laughs> more than you do already, Ben. Uh, and Paul Beck, who represents the Douglas Timber Operators. So you probably can't come up with two people who are farther apart politically, and yet there they were sitting next to each other. And I don't remember whether it was Paul or Bob who said this, but pointing at the other person, he said, when we started this, I didn't like him. And I still don't agree with very much of what he says. Uh, but this can work. And even though it's not something that any one of us would have designed if we got to do on our own, this is the this is the compromise that can work. And as important as it is for solving this immediate issue, it's also a model for taking on other big issues. And, you know, every, everyone has a list of the things they're most proud of having worked on. This this definitely has the, uh, the potential going on that list for me. That's awesome. Do you see a next chapter of, I mean, you mentioned this framework for other big issues. Are there, are there environmental or conservation issues that you have in mind? Well, I think everything has to be uh, framed in the, in the, uh, in the reality of, of climate chaos. How do, how do we, how do we uh, create space for, uh, for being on offense around, you know, in, in creating a climate rescue uh, agenda? Um, wildfire has, I think, a big, uh, a big opportunity in it because as much as we spend so much, we spend a lot of time talking about the future that we want to avoid, you know, the, the, the doom and gloom, the terrible things. And I feel like we do ourselves a disservice when we just say, you know, the future will be a little less terrible if we do all these things. <laughs> um, when, when we really could also say, we, we create a much better future um, if, if we do these things. So, uh, you know, there, there's there's big opportunity here. I, you know, I, I'm state treasurer, so I think about financial tools. There is in the Constitution a provision for forest restoration bonds. It hasn't been used in a long time. Um, let's figure out some of these financial tools that would allow us to, to reduce the, the risk of wildfire at the same time we're creating jobs, uh, creating economic opportunity. Um, there's 
there's a lot of opportunity in that. And I think the, the Elliot, the, the concept that included timber and environmental uh, and tribal interests, all of these, these people at a table, I think in some ways we, we, we sort of inadvertently tricked them. We asked for a one-year commitment to do this and this advisory committee is in year three now, um, but it's working well enough that they're, they're at the table. Uh, and I think we could do that for other issues too. I, I cannot believe you just mentioned the reforestation bonds because I just had a conversation with uh, former Secretary of State Phil Kiesling, which maybe you've talked to him about this issue too. But years ago, I know he, he told you about the Tillamook and how he was out there and, and planted those trees. And yeah, I've it's heard, a, heard it is, that too. Yeah. It is a truly brilliant idea, this idea of like, we've got all these private lands that are being underutilized. They could grow trees, but they're not being used for trees or any other agricultural purpose. What if we paid to have those reforested and then the state took a cut if and when they were ever cut down and that cut would be used to replenish the fund to plant more trees it's like a carbon sequestration policy it's great for private owners they may never cut anyway i was like blown away by how smart this was <laughs> well i like that and and it won't the forest part is not relevant for what i'm about to say but you could take that same uh, approach in Eastern Oregon too, and talk about carbon in in soil, um, ranchers and farmers and rangeland. Um, these are these are all uh, relevant and, and things we should be working on. Okay, Alex, transition us now. I apologize once again, well, although not ben, really. I had, I had my perfect transition because you mentioned money, and my next three questions are all about money. But then talked about trees more, so totally ruined transition. <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, treasurer, so I've. Uh, I have three different questions about uh, various uh, finance questions. Uh, my first question is, I want to talk a little bit about transparency and investments in state pension funds. Uh, and there's a couple of different examples, both one in Oregon. Uh, I believe that the Oregon, per as I'm not mistaken, was an active shareholder. I don't know if it was like a mutual fund or actually owned a share of stock or a company or something with the uh, Israeli NSO spyware company. Uh, but it's more than that in the sense of that you know, I think some on the left would say that uh, it's time for the state to divest from investing in any fossil fuel companies. Uh, I personally feel really strongly, both from a national security and human rights perspective, that uh, state pension funds should not be investing in Chinese tech companies or Chinese healthcare companies or anything like that, based on both national security perspective and a human rights angle. Uh, but of course, the opposite angle of that is that, you know, uh, you as the treasurer, which I think that falls into your purview, maybe it falls into the legislature, uh, you have to provide the best return rate for shareholders right. who, of course, uh, in this circumstance are not necessarily like, you know, uh, you're working for Goldman Sachs, you're working for the firefighter who worked for 30 years and now is living off the pension from the state. Uh, so I think that because there's a, you know, kind of a big movement for reform in general across the country. Uh, how do you kind of look at that? Well, first, let me congratulate you, Tejas. I know you're always looking for the opportunity to get uh, foreign policy in China into, into the conversation. So this is a, a clever way of doing it. Mission accomplished. Uh, yes, exactly. <laughs> um, feels like that's your, your box checked uh, for nearly every episode. Um, so there's a lot in what you talked about. Um, let's talk first about the, um, gosh, I don't know which one to start first with. So I'm just going to ramble for a little bit here and you can you can redirect me at any point. So you're right first to point out that our obligation is to beneficiaries. That is our exclusive uh, legal obligation to generate returns for retirees. And I think the last thing you'd want in a treasurer is someone who is, is injecting their own politics into those decisions. Uh, having said that, there there is, I believe, and I think I think most people would believe, a, a, a contra sort of a, a, a danger 
that we're not living up to that if we are not considering the risks that various um, factors play in delivering those returns. So they're, they're collectively often referred to as ESG concerns, environmental, social, and governance concerns. And you can fit nearly all of these into some, some of those buckets. So we've been really diligent and, and aggressive in adding to our capacity to consider those factors as we make investment decisions. Now, I'll pause there for a second and take on this other question. The structure and how we deliver returns really matters as well. There are two kind of extreme examples in the world of institutional investing. On the one hand, uh, there's the Yale model, uh, most associated with David Swenson, and they outsource everything. Uh, he was the CIO at Yale and, and is really well regarded. I think I have a book by him somewhere back here. Um, uh, so they didn't, they didn't do anything directly. They used external consultants for everybody. On the other end of the spectrum is the Canadian model and they have insourced everything. So they make direct deals and in individual companies um, mm -hmm. you're kind of in the middle. We're a hybrid. Um, when we can do things ourselves, we'll do that. Um, it's a lot less expensive to hire talent to work in Tiger than it is in Manhattan. So if we're trying to do an index, we're matching something, we can do that ourselves and it's less expensive. And you know, one of our, our unofficial mottos at, at Treasury is that every basis point counts. When we're talking about $140 billion, we can save a couple basis points, that adds up and it compounds. So we'll do that. But there are other places where we recognize that we don't have the specific expertise uh, and, and we're gonna pay for that. That's the nature of uh, private equity. And in doing that, we take a position that's known as a limited partner. So that means we'll listen to pitches from general partners, uh, people who will come before us and say, we are really good at X. And we, we believe that um, we have the secret sauce to identify um, healthcare technology in uh, the middle market in, in Europe. And we'll say, great, here's, here's $200 million, go out and make it work for us. And, and you know, the, the incentives are aligned because they get some of the, some of the gains and, and our beneficiaries get some of the gains as well. But because we are a limited partner, our decision is limited to whether we give them money. We don't have any influence after that point to say, we like that company, but we don't like that company that you chose. And the example that you picked uh, or that you pointed to around NSO is an example of that. We invested in Novopina, uh, the, the general mm, partner okay. who then made that decision. And I am concerned about how NSO has, has operated. Um, I don't think that's, uh, <laughs> it's not good uh, when, the, when companies like that are used as, as they are uh, alleged to have operated. But our role as limited partner is limited to the decision about the, uh, the general partner and where, where we spend those dollars. So then circling back again to the larger question around activism versus divestment, I think this is really important because um, our, our, again, our obligation is to generate returns. But when, if we wanna talk about, I've talked too long, you're taking a drink, that's not good. Um, <laughs> we, um, oh no, this is we have more of an influence uh, on on the course of the of the world, and if our our, our point is to try to uh, to change the direction of the economy, um, we do more when we are active investors. Um, you may have followed some of the um, uh, maybe a year ago now. Time flies. Uh, election of uh, board of the board of directors at Exxon Mobil. Um, mm. There was a kind of an insurgent slate of directors who shockingly, we're willing to acknowledge that climate change is real and that that would have a, uh, an influence on the decisions that ExxonMobil uh, would make. 
Well, we own some ExxonMobil through our index strategies. And as a result of that, we were able to vote for that insurgent slate of candidates. Um, if the we state, didn't, basically the your, state office, your office, the state got to vote? Yeah, oh, we absolutely get to vote. I, in fact, I'll wow. tell you another story about that in a minute. Um, uh, yeah, we, that's, a, that's a decision that we get to cast our shares if we own them. If we don't, we would be you know, a, a, a bystander um, not getting to influence that. Uh, in, a, in a totally different uh, environment, I actually got to present a shareholder proposal, um, <laughs> COVID world on, uh, on a phone call uh, and we beat management, uh, requiring a company to produce a report on their uh, political activities. Um, we, 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 we beat the management position on that. So it's a really underappreciated aspect uh, of, the, huh. of the treasurer's office. So someone I talked to recently had a really interesting um, uh, observation around the question of, of decarbonization. I uh, said, I, I'm a lot less concerned about what carbon is in your, in your portfolio than I am about what carbon is in the air. And we need to use the, the power of being an institutional investor in concert with others uh, to try to influence that. And you don't get to do that if you're, if you're divested. Yeah, but no, and it's one, more, one more comment on that, I should say too. Um, others will point to other, other states who have made specific commitments uh, about this. And I tell those folks, the trajectory is really clear. We are investing less in fossil fuels and more in renewables. And if you look at, at where we are now versus where we were a few years ago, that's clear. And if you compared us, I'm really confident in, in future years, um, we're probably gonna be very similar to those other, other, uh, those other, other uh, states and, and investors. We're just doing it in a really diligent way and not, not being as flashy about it because I think part of my job as treasurer is to build that into the culture of treasury and, and add that capacity to our to our, our team such that it stays after I'm not treasurer. Yeah, no, and it's, it's, uh, it's such an interesting issue and I wish we could uh, dive more into it, but I, uh, but we know that we know that you're running or running short on time for the episode. Uh, so the next question I want to ask you uh, is actually about cryptocurrency. Uh, and I will say, uh, I feel like I'm much more hip on the financial trends than Ben, because uh, when I asked our first person ever about cryptocurrency, it was Jimmy Crumpacker. And uh, Ben did not think it'd be an interesting question, but as I'm sure you've probably seen from the news and maybe not in your race, is that uh, crypto is like all over the place with politicians, right? I mean, you have- The sixth uh, Josh in particular. <laughs> we yeah, should talk about that. Oregon. Yeah, and you know, Josh Mandel, very conservative Trump Republican running in Ohio for Senate, said something like, we need God, guns, and crypto. Uh, <laughs> you have the mayor of Miami who gets some of his paycheck yep. in crypto, who's a Republican. You have the mayor of New York City, who's right. a Democrat, who also gets some of his paycheck in crypto. Uh, you know, I think a lot of uh, both governors and mayors and, and stuff are thinking that this is a new wave of finance that is coming, and how can we sort of capitalize on this so that, like, New York comes out ahead and we're sort of the innovation lab for this. So Portland comes out ahead. Uh, do you have a position on crypto or kind of a framework or how do you, how do you approach it as a candidate? I'd be curious too if this is the first gubernatorial candidate being asked about crypto, but maybe I can go back and research that later. So. Maybe the first one in Oregon, I don't know. Uh, but I, I, I can't imagine that I'm the first in the, in the country to be asked about it. Um, I would say a couple of things. Um, one is is to you know, acknowledge off the top. This is not my area of expertise. I don't spend my time on on, on crypto generally. 
Um, but I do think there is there is a fundamental opportunity for Oregon that, that is a little bit broader than crypto around blockchain technology and, and making Oregon a place where where blockchain technology can can thrive and flourish. Um, and obviously, one application of that would be cryptocurrency. Um, we we spent uh, some time as part of the Oregon Growth Board um, investing in the blockchain venture studio. Uh, some years ago, which has resulted in some some good things happening uh, in Oregon. I think the, I think you can draw a line from those investments and that um, that ecosystem to to the fact that Coinbase uh, has has a presence in Oregon as a result. Um, oh, really? So they do. They do. Yeah. Um, oh, that's it's super their, interesting. It's not their only uh, presence, of course, but um, but I think that kind of thing can can be part of of our strategy um, within the investment world um i think it is you know it's it's probably early I, I you know this is this is a place where i recognize my role is is as treasurer not as as an investment officer inside treasury but generally the the decisions we make around asset classes are really tied to to specific roles within the portfolio um you know the the largest part of our of our returns are are in private equity uh, we think of real estate as more of the uh, the mechanism of providing cash over time, reliable, less less uh, risky cash. So, if if we were ever to get to that point, it would have to fit into a specific place. But it's worth remembering that that we have indirect exposure um, to to crypto in some of the places that we invest. Um, you know, we own some Tesla, and they have some some crypto. So, so we're not yeah. not completely insulated from that. And I think we're gonna we will over time continue to be really uh, responsible about how we take that. We don't we don't want to take unnecessary risk, but we also don't want to miss out on on ways to generate returns for our beneficiaries. Yeah, I would say if your campaign does launch to bias coin, uh, I will take full credit for that. <laughs> I think there is very nearly zero percent chance. <laughs> <laughs> somebody's gonna do it didn't titus didn't you say some uh somebody's launched their own was it blake blake masters yeah, a, a senate candidate an arizona republican launched his own nft and he raised like half a million dollars off of it so <laughs> I, play, uh, I have not gone so far i do have a coinbase account uh, and i i helped I made an introduction uh, to someone, someone who is is doing the first um, municipal bond offering on blockchain, and they sent me uh, a, an NFT as sort of a, a, a commemoration of this first transaction, and so I have one. I have no idea what to do with it, but that's a good. Uh, that sums up. I have no idea what to do with it. Sums up my feelings on NFTs. Um, uh, Okay, so one more policy question, then we'll we'll do a couple campaign questions. Okay. Um, and again, in classic fashion, this is broad because I don't know how else to ask this. Um, so, so the city of Portland is experiencing some challenges, um, both on a policy level, but also reputationally, yes. um, and it is affecting the rest of Oregon too. Um, and so, you know, we've talked a little bit about homelessness and uh, housing affordability. We sort of alluded to the behavioral health crisis. Um, I guess my question is, if you become governor, there's at least three layers of government closer to Portland and closer to the problem than the governor's office and then the legislature. You've got the city council, you've got the county commission, you've got Metro. Um, 
And so I wonder, it seems to me, and, and maybe you have a different take, but it seems like the current governor's office has essentially taken a hands-off approach to Portland challenges and basically said, that's Ted Wheeler and Deb Kafori and Lynn Peterson and their team's responsibility, and I will be a partner in their work, um, but it seems to be distant. Um, and so I'm wondering if you have a different take on the governor's role uh, on it's like, I don't want to, it seems more than just a city specific issue because of Portland and because of how those impacts reverberate across Oregon. But how would you see the role of the governor in supporting Portland's recovery? Um, yeah, I'm just curious if you have thoughts on that. Yeah, thoughtful question. Um, I think you're right. And and I would only, I think you said it, but if you didn't, it's not just reverberating across Oregon, it's reverberating across the country. Um, it, it has, as you said, a reputational impact on, on what we can do. So I think the governor has to take a role. And I think, I think there's a matter of, um, ensuring that resources are available. Here's here's a place, I mean, the, the mayors have, have made it really clear they need additional help uh, on, on emergency shelters and transitional housing. Um, and I think there's there's an important role for the governor to play in removing barriers when when th those are relevant and probably convening. Um, as you said, there's there's a difference um, when, when there's specific authorities at the local level, but they're maybe not getting along, uh, or they have different ideas. And I, you know, I'm not in those rooms with those people, but I can, can that seems like a thing. <laughs> does. It seems like they're not all perfectly aligned right now. And maybe this is an example of where we go back to the, to the story of the Elliot, where none of them would have said, that's the version I like, but they can say that's the version I can live with and we can make work. So I think there's a role for the governor to, to do that. And that's, that's an important, uh, distinction in in the context of this race because you know passing a bill uh, appropriating money uh, is is something uh, but it's not everything and it's not all that's necessary that that execution that follow through after the headlines are gone uh, really matters and we see example after example where state government has not been up to the task of late so uh, that's a piece that I really want to bring to the race and saying these are these are places where where I've demonstrated an ability to, to follow through and, and make sure that results happen. Um, that's, I think, something that we're, we're missing. Great, okay. And then uh, now we're gonna transition to the meat of the subject, which as we joke is the campaign section. Uh, so uh, Treasurer Reed, I'd love to hear, uh, here's, here's kind of the state of the race in my mind is uh, we just had this news about, it was a week ago that Nicholas Kristoff would raise uh, an ungodly amount of money, if it was, if I'm not mistaken, it was over $3 million, is now basically out. And spent the uh, fair, fair bit of it too, but yes. Okay, well, yeah, that's, that's even worse for his donors, but uh, but that, that's where it is, at least right now. Uh, we have uh, Speaker of the House, Tina Kotzak. She's uh, at least seemed to have gotten a number of significant labor group endorsements, uh, endorsements from pro-choice groups, uh, obviously very influential players in the Democratic Party. Uh, I think you have uh, somewhat in a way, at least with some of the campaign messages that I've seen, have positioned yourself a little bit more of as, as an outsider. Uh, and that I think at least Kotech, obviously being the Speaker of the House, I would say is the progressive establishment, essentially. Uh, curious of where kind of you think the state of the race is, and then uh, also your strategy to make sure that you come out on top uh, with the Democratic primary voters. Yeah, the broad question. Uh, I mean, I think it's it's really clear. It's a two-person race now, and there's a big contrast. As you said, um, the speaker is is the establishment candidate, and if people are feeling like everything is great, um, they might be 
they might be likely to vote for her. But my sense, uh, anecdotally, and from all the polling that I've seen, suggests that voters are not happy. They are not feeling good about the direction that, that we're in. The, the Portland Business Alliance poll is, is, a, is a prominent example of that. And I've never seen a number that's so low in terms of, of the right track question. So I think what, what we're trying to demonstrate is, is the contrast here. Do you, do you like the way things have been going? Do you like the, the, the myriad failures of, of state government to execute and deliver for people? Or do you want someone who has, uh, who has a demonstrated record of being able to deliver results of, of managing a, a large uh, entity, uh, a lot of dollars, uh, and delivering for people. There is a difference uh, between legislative service and executive service. The governor is not the 91st legislator. Uh, I think people want a governor who is willing to execute, who is willing to take consistent positions and meet their word. Uh, these are all things that, that really make a difference. And in a race now that is, is, uh, is two people, I think you can, I think it'd be hard pressed to find a, a bigger contrast. So my, my question is, about campaign finance and potentially campaign finance reform. I'll let you bring that in if you want to. But as an observer, it is, especially with the Kristoff dynamic, right? Like you're seeing, you saw really large checks from people, some out of state, some in state, um, which some, some campaign finance reform people have take exception to, think is a problem. Then for um, Speaker Kotek, you've, you're, you've seen and will likely see more of organizations spending large amounts of money um, for her. And you've had a bit of a mix, I feel like. You've had some large donors, some small donors. Um, so I guess, do you, do you think that the current system is fair in terms of how we raise our money? Um, because I, so it's different at the federal level. We, we, we joked about this earlier, but we didn't actually describe what we were talking about. There's literally a cryptocurrency billionaire who he can't give directly to this candidate for the sixth congressional district, which you can at a state level. So he is spending um, what is now hundreds of thousands, but will likely become into the millions to support his candidate. Um, Oregon, we cut out the middleman. You can just give directly to the candidate. Um, right. So I guess you're you're in an interesting you're in an you're in an even more interesting position before, where you look on one side and this guy's getting a bunch of money from big donors out of state. You look on the other side, they're getting a bunch of money from. Um, organizations in state. Has that impacted your view of fairness in the campaign finance sense? Not really, because I think it's all a question of, uh, you know, how do you implement it? I, I'm, I'm fine with, with the idea of campaign finance reform, uh, supported the initiative and, you know, but the legislature hasn't been able to, to decide how to do it. And that's because it's complicated. <laughs> I'll add another uh, anecdote to this uh, question that I think illustrates the complexity of it too. And, and you alluded to the, to a more recent example of it with the, the indirect funding from the crypto uh, guy uh, when I was uh, a younger person, I, I managed a, a legislative campaign in 1996. Uh, neither of you probably were, were aware of politics. Who was the candidate? Uh, my candidate was Brian Johnston. Oh, um, yeah. Okay. Uh, and this was the one cycle where there were contribution and expenditure limits in, in Oregon. Uh, and right. the, the piece that, <laughs> that people are sometimes surprised by is when I say, what do you, what do you think the first thing we did virtually every, every workday was? We went to the post office and searched through the recycling bins because we could get like a one day head start on what people were going to receive at their homes when they would get into the P.O. boxes. So it wasn't like there was less 
campaign messaging. It's just that it wasn't us. And, you know, we were adhering to the law. We were coordinating. So we're like, well, let's go see what everybody's saying about us and, uh, you know, about our opponents. Um, so the idea of limiting the contributions based on that example and the one that you gave, does, it's not a panacea. It doesn't change things necessarily. Uh, so that, that complication really, really is, is real. Um, I, you know, there, there are lots of other interesting ways to think about campaign finance, but I think you also uh, articulated it well, at least in Oregon, you got to be able to, to defend your decision to, to take money from whomever you do. My, my one, my one, this is like my hill to die on for campaign finance reform, which I think similarly to you, I acknowledge it's very complex and it probably, we, we need to move towards, we need to reform the current system. However, what concerns me is we aren't able to, if I'm a billionaire, you can limit my ability to give to other people, but you can't limit my ability to give to myself. So mm -hmm. I worry that if we move to a system where we don't account for that dynamic, wealthy people will start with a gigantic head start over anyone yeah. running against them. So I don't know if there's a like a safety release <laughs> where you like remove the cap for people running against people who are self-funding. Well, there are versions of that in, in the various public financing uh, mechanisms, I think. Uh, I'm not an expert in all the versions of that, but I think I remember that. Like there's, you know, the circuit breaker sort of thing where your opponent is self-funding and then, then the limits are, are released or, or increased or something. I, I think all of this points to, to the, the notion of transparency, you know, and, and if we, we have pretty good transparency in our system, but if we were to go to some limitation, um, there, there are mechanisms of having to disclose who's paying for things, or, you know, ads or mailers or those sorts of things. Those, those all ought to be part of the conversation as well. Totally. Well, we are three minutes away uh, from our deadline here. So uh, my final question, as you are probably prepared for is, and this time it's not about the treasurer's office, but if folks are interested in your campaign or they have questions for you, they wanna, they wanna ask about, uh, or maybe they want to do an internship. What's the best way to get in touch or to follow what you're doing? This is one of the places where I can be grateful to my parents for giving me a name that is not so common. So if you apply <laughs> Tobias Reed to virtually any social uh, channel, you'll find us, TobiasReed.com, at Tobias Reed, uh, Tobias Reed OR on, uh, uh, on Instagram. Um, we're, we're there and, and we'd love to talk to people. All right. Well, Treasure Reed, thank you so much for making time to come back on uh, the Oregon Bridge. We appreciate the conversation and we'll uh, see you down, down on the campaign trail. It's my pleasure. I appreciate what you're doing. Lots of good content from all of you. Thanks.